part of the media ministry of Cornerstone Church. You can listen to this and other messages on our website at www.corner-stone.org or by subscribing to our podcast. Well, as we start this series for in the next five or six weeks, we're in Dalka, we will be talking about marriage. And we're really going to be talking about this one part of marriage, this, you know, Christ-centeredness in marriage. Uh, guys, you can live marriage in a whole bunch of different ways, and, and people do. And yet, what we're about here, and especially this year as we put this focus in 2016 on being Christ-centered and family-focused, is that we really want Christ-centered marriages. And I promise you that even if you've been going to church all your life, that there's probably still some areas that God wants to move you toward that Christ-centeredness. And so each week, we're going to be kind of traveling along a little bit of the way. This is more foundational this morning. To, to be honest, it's going to be reviewed for several of you. If you've been to marriage conferences before and if you've uh, heard Pastor Darrow just lay out beautifully the, the beauty of marriage, this will be a review for some, but for others it will be brand new. And, and I want us to start in that same place together. I don't want to leave some people behind just assuming that you already know what it says in Genesis chapter 2 about marriage. So for those that are kind of beyond that, <laughs> you've read Piper and Keller and all these other great Guys on, on marriage, and, and you've got this deep understanding, be patient with us. For the other ones, just listen, and, and I pray that God would bless you this morning. Two things I want you to know from the very, very beginning of this series. Number one, God loves marriage. He loves marriage. He doesn't like marriage a lot. He's not kind of favorable toward marriage. He loves marriage. He's the one that invented it. He's the one that created it. Adam and Eve did not come up and say, hey, you know, we're here and we really think that something needs to happen. It was not even in their mind and heart until God put it in their heart. He created it. He loves it. And here's the second thing that you need to know going through this series. There is no one that is more for your marriage than God. No one. You know, you, you might say, well, you know, our parents, they really want to see, they want to help us because we, we've had some struggles and so they're praying for us. We have friends that are praying for us. That is great. And we need all the encouragement of the body of believers and encouragement of Christians around us when we do this marriage thing, whether you consider yourself to have a wonderful marriage or you have a real marriage. And, and you know, because it's one of those things that as much as we have, we desire this wonderful marriage, it's hard. And we're going to see why it's so hard. Number one, we live in a fallen world. We're fallen people. And, and, and so all the things that we aspire to, that we really want, don't just come naturally. What naturally comes is really selfishness. And selfishness and marriage don't really make a good recipe there. And so as we go through this, just realize those two truths, that God loves marriage. He's the one that created it, as we will see in Genesis 2 this morning. But also, there is nobody that is more for your marriage and for it to be Christ-centered and it to be vibrant witness of what the gospel is. And because we'll see that next week, there's a reason why God wants you to have a, a wonderful marriage. One is he loves you and he wants you to have pleasure in marriage. But there's a second reason. It is probably the purest reflection of the gospel, as we will see in Ephesians 5 next week, that people can see with their eyes. Man, look at those two people. They really shouldn't get along that well. And yet that surrender that comes to the gospel life, putting Christ in the center instead of myself as the center, calls me to an area of sacrifice that I promise you does not come naturally to me, does not come naturally to you. And so with that in mind this morning, I want you to, to realize those two truths. I don't say that based on emotion. I don't say it based on romantic sentiment. It is so easy when we come to, to marriage to make it very romantic. And it is romantic. 
God has given us that ability to to make it very romance-oriented. But I promise you, God is much more concerned about what he says here than what, uh, you know, somebody's reading uh, in the movie The Notebook or something. I I mean, those, I mean, I've watched a chip flick or two. You know, the sacrifice of my heart. You know, Carly, you you really like that movie? Yeah. And so, you know, you, you do that, and I find myself, hey, you want to watch The Notebook tonight? You know, it's just one of those, you know, I, I like romance. And yet what we're talking about today involves romantic love, but it's not the basis of that. And so I want, to, want you to get your Bibles, and I want you to open up to, to Genesis chapter 2. And let me tell you from the very beginning what the biggest temptation of the next five or six weeks will be. The, next, the biggest temptation for the next five or six weeks is that we will bury ourselves into the foundation of God's word and what he says about marriage. And there will be this temptation in every one of our lives to say, yeah, but what about, and fill in the blank. That somehow there's a situation that you and I have come upon that somehow this doesn't apply to. That somehow that God has colored this for the whole rest of the world, but some, your situation kind of right outside of that. Everybody else fits on this table, but yours is kind of like right over here. Guys, avoid that temptation. I promise you that when God spoke this word, he spoke it for the purpose of bringing edification and growth and maturity to to marriage, even your marriage. And maybe you're not even in marriage right now, and you're just in that situation preparing for marriage, or you're coming out of a bad marriage, or all these different things. I believe that God will bless you and, and use this series to help you. Maybe to clarify, maybe to see things that, okay, as I go back into marriage, or, or do I reignite this old marriage? You know, just let God speak to you. And don't put your outs- yourself outside of the boundaries of, yeah, that's what God's Word says, but. With that in mind, Genesis chapter 2, verse 18. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man, that's Adam, should be alone. And I will make a helper fit for him. There have been thousands and thousands, I would say maybe a million books written over the eons of times on marriage. Many, many good ones. Again, uh, John Piper, if you've never written his foundational book on marriage, uh, it's probably the best book I've ever read on marriage, of a Christ-centered marriage. And Tim Keller and some others, there's excellent writers out there that can give you all kinds of both theological help, but also the practical help in marriage. And they're all good. But, but understand this as we open up God's word and as we read this first verse in Genesis 2.18, everybody else, even Piper, Keller, all these other great writers, they're all writing commentary on marriage. This is the only, the word of God is the only one that's the foundation of marriage. Do you get that? There, there's this commentary. It could be very good and useful commentary, very blessed and, and edifying. Uh, my sermons, I, I, I pray, will be edifying, but it's commentary. The minute I leave God's word, I, I'm making comments on it. And so all the, you know, when we open up God's word and we begin to see these things, understand that we're getting down to the root of the truth. Everybody else is making comments, very good comments, hopefully, Everybody else is just doing commentary. This is the truth. This is the foundation of marriage. And it all starts with the Lord God saying something. God himself saying something. If you look in Genesis chapter 1, he's made things. He made light. And he said, it's good. He separated the light from the darkness. He made land. And he separated it from the waters. And he said, this is good. 
And he made trees and all of nature, and he made the beauty of the things that we see out there. And he said, this is good. And he continued on with that process. He made animals and birds and the fish of the sea and all those things, and he said, it's good. Every time that God did one of these creative acts in those first six days of creation, he always comes back at the end and says, this is good. He makes man, Adam, says, this is good. And then on the seventh day, he rests from these six days of creation. He looks back, and we have this culminating statement in Genesis 1.31, the last verse of chapter 1, this culminating, he said not only that it was good, he said it was very good. So he makes all these things. There's not an error. There's not one thing out of, out of line. There's nothing that's, you know, that was kind of, you know, the grass should have been this color of green and instead it was that color of green. Everything is perfection. And yet, Genesis chapter 2, verse 18, God speaks. And, and what's the first thing that he says in chapter 2 there? Verse 18, it is not good. After all these things that are not just good, but very good, he says there's something not good. And he says that it's not good for man to be alone. Now, now first, before we really dig into that, was Adam really alone? Who's there? Okay, God is there. And I've always heard and I've always tried to preach that God is sufficient. No matter who you are, whether you're alone or whatever, that God is sufficient for your need. And I believe very much that he is. You don't need marriage to complete you. Even though many people, God has called them to marriage. He's called some to be single. And for them, he very much says, you know, for everyone, he says, I'm the completer of your life. Don't wait for this man. Don't wait for this woman. Even if it is Mr. Wright or Mrs. Wright, they're not there to complete you. They are there to help you do what you were always originally meant to do, and that is to give me glory. When I do premarital counseling, one of the things I always want to make sure that I sit down and one of the first questions I ask is, guys, as you get married, what do you think the purpose of marriage is? And they go all over the place with procreation and, you know, so that we're not you know, uh, lonely, and all those things are good. They're all biblical. We're, we're going to find them in God's Word. And yet at the heart of that, really at the dead center of why God has purposed for us, you know, even in marriage, our purpose of our life is to bring Him glory. The first morning of the first breath you ever took, your, your purpose that He gave you life is to bring Him glory. You get married, guess what your purpose remains? To bring Him glory. But here's the cool thing. That for many, God has ordained, he has blessed, he has purposed for you to have somebody by your side to help you bring glory to God. Because guys, I don't know about you, but I kind of tire in this whole glory to God thing sometimes. I get so full of myself. My eyes are there. And and that's where sometimes my my wife will give me that word of correction or that word of encouragement and, and vice versa. And so one of those great gifts is, okay, you know, you're not really alone, but, but I made you with a purpose oftentimes to have somebody by your side. The other thing that we see there, uh, besides God, what, what else was already created that, that Adam was in the midst of? You had the garden that was filled with the biggest petting zoo you've ever seen. I mean, this is before the fall. This is before sin. So all the animals, the lion is laying down with the lamb and all, you know, all this. I mean, it's like the, the, the warmest, fuzziest place that you could ever be in life. And uh, I guess I'll say this. You know, there's sometimes that you kind of do want a good pet. 
and just, you know, you and your pet. <laughs> and there's, you know, just sometimes that, you know, that, that dog or that cat or whatever it is that, that you know, that, yeah, you're going, man, I'm just kind of, I'm kind of complete here. So Adam's there. He's got a pet. He's got a lot of pets. He's got a relationship with God. There is no sin. There's no tarnish in his life. And yet it is not Adam that speaks this, but it is God that says it is not good for man to be alone. What's up with that? God, when he designed Adam, theologians call this a purposeful void. There was nothing wrong with Adam, but in creation of Adam, when God took the dust and breathed life into it, he made Adam in such a way, he said, okay, I'm going to leave one space there. I'm going to leave a, a purposeful void. It's not a void that is caused out of error or out of sin. There's a purposeful void that's going to be left because I'm going to bring you a, a gift and a treasure into your life. And that's what he purposed marriage to be. What we see here is that all of God's original plan was not his reaction to some sin. It would be one thing if we see, you know, Adam or Eve kind of falling there and all of a sudden God's going, okay, now how am I going to kind of clean this mess up? I'll give him a wife. She'll keep him in order. Yeah. I mean, a lot of guys, we can relate to that. But that's not the case. Adam's by himself. He's got all these animals around. And the first thing that we see there is that marriage is a gift from God. Adam really doesn't even have in his mindset there this need. But the second thing that we see see there in the last part of verse 18, it says, I will make him a helper fit for him. First thing that we see there is that, that marriage is a gift from God, but our mate, if God calls us to be married, our mate is a gift from God. Now, how did God kind of instruct Adam in this whole thing? You know, he doesn't send him off to eHarmony to fill out a 29-point questionnaire. Nothing wrong with that, you know, but God didn't use that. He said, let me see your qualities and your traits and see if I can match that up with somebody over here. There is nobody else there. He doesn't send him off with, uh, to say, okay, you list a list of qualities, Adam. Adam was clueless. Thousands of years later, some of us guys are still clueless of, you know, when it comes to marriage and all that kind of stuff. He doesn't have a clue, guys. Adam's not sitting there, I mean, get this, Adam's not sitting there going, you know, I just want to find someone like my mom. He doesn't have a mom. The guy doesn't know where to begin. And so what does God do? Get this, this is so wonderful. Look at verse 20, Genesis 2, 20. God calls Adam out to go name all the animals. It says, the man gave names to all the livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. He says, okay, it is not good. Verse 18, it is not good for him to be alone. There's a purposeful void in his life. I'm going to fill that with a mate. It's going to be a gift, this spouse, this, this wife. But he says, I want you to do one thing first, Adam. And this thing is to go name all the animals. Now, now bear with me for a second. Who is usually more creative, women or men? Women. I think most of us would, you know, there are exceptions to the rules. I've always said, guys, we would have been very content with that Crayola Crayola, uh, package of eight. You know, give us eight colors, that's all we need. That we would never know all these other great colors that are out there if it wasn't for the creativity of our wives. And so what does 
God asked Adam to do. I want you to go name the animals. And he names the animals, and he comes up with all these names. But there's a purpose in that. It wasn't just to get the task done before the wife gets on the scene. There's the purpose, and that purpose is he begins to see that the lion has the lioness. And the tiger kind of has the tigress. And that this cow has, you know, a, a pair over here. And that, that as these animals, it says that God brought the animals before Adam and he's naming these animals. And as he names these animals, he knows that there's something peculiar, that they're just kind of paired up. They're matched. And as Adam begins to think about that, the, the, the thing that's going off in his mind, in his heart is, where, where's my match? Where's my pair? I, I truly believe that he was pretty much clueless before that. And yet God ignites this purposeful void in Adam's life and says, okay, Adam, I created you this way. Not, you didn't get this way out of your sin. I created you with this purposeful void because now I want you to see this gift that I have for you. And he begins to have this awareness of the void. Look at verse 21. So the Lord God caused the deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and he closed it up uh, in his place with flesh. And so God puts Adam to sleep. He takes a rib. He puts him out. You know, there's the old wives tale that women have one more rib than man. We don't. That's an old wives tale, okay? But, But that's where they get it from. God creates from his flesh and from his bones. He creates a mate for him. According to the blueprint that God already had designed, not, not a request list. I, I want to be tall. Blonde would be good. You know, this, you know he doesn't have this list of, of things that he has as qualifiers for his mate. You know, God, by the, by the holiness and the faithfulness of God, just has this mate that's perfect for Adam. I, I like to say it this way. Eve was in the mind of God long before she was ever in the arms of Adam. See, I, the reason I make a big fuss of this, guys, when I sit down to do premarital counseling and do this, I, I mean, I love marriage. I, I, I just absolutely love marriage. And in the coming weeks, you'll see why, because there's so much spiritual um, depth there to, to what God has called us into. It's not just for our pleasure, even though it is so pleasurable. God gives this gift to, to Adam, and he gives this gift because of the grace of his heart. He didn't need to do it. He does it because he wants to, and he designed Adam for that. And so Adam sits back. He wakes up, and look at verse 23. I love this in verse 23. Then the man said, this is the first words that we have from Adam. Do you, do you have the first recordings of some of your kids' words? You know, it's like, that's a big deal. Hey, when you were off at work today, he said, Mama. And we go, man, they said their first word, and we have such joy. Well, this is really the first words. Not that Adam spoke, but that we see recorded here. And what's the first thing that he see? It says, this is out of the ESV version. And uh, I think that that and the Holman really handled the depth of what the, Hebrew, the original Hebrew is. And here's what it says. Then the man said, that is what Adam said, this at last is bone of my bones. And flesh of my flesh, she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. He uses those words at last. 
See, as he was naming those animals, there was that anticipation. It's kind of like, you know, we're in the midst of planning our second wedding in two years. And there's a joy to that. There's really this anticipation, but there's also a frustration with it. And in fact, my youngest daughter, the one getting married, last week she was talking to her mom and she said, are we done with this yet? She just wants to get married. You know, she's just ready to get married. And all the details, she goes, there's a lot of details that go into this marriage thing. And, And Carly said, we've only just begun. But there's that anticipation there. There's this excitement. Man, we got this wedding day. Yet there's also the frustration of trying to get everything just arranged and everything in order. That's how Adam is here. There, as he would name the animals and as they would come by, he's going, okay, I start sensing there's something that, God, you have for me. And finally, God puts him to sleep, takes the rib, creates Eve, wakes Adam and Eve both up. And what does he say? This at last is bone of my bones. And flesh my flesh. At last, God. I see why you were stirring this in my heart, in my life. At last, you've answered this. You've given me this great uh, gift. Now look at verse 24. They wake up. They don't date a long time. God does a marriage right there. Okay? God performs the first marriage in verse 24. Genesis 2.24. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother, and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. This is more than just romantic words, flowery words, kind of sentimental words, emotional, you know, heartstrings. These are pronouncements from holy God. And what we see in this verse is God laying down a foundation for married life and marital uh, experience in our lives. I mean, Adam didn't know how to be a husband any more than Eve knew how to be a wife. I mean, they're just kind of clueless about this. And and yet they are there. God brings them together. There's no books. They can't go out and read. John Piper's, you know, this momentary marriage. They can't, you know, get their hands on some good stuff. They can't sit through a series. And they're just kind of, they're almost like blank slates. And God begins to show them the beauty of this thing called marriage that he's created. Number one, it shows us that he's the author of marriage. It also shows us very much that these uh, declarations that he makes, this is going to be the fiber. This is going to be the foundation of marital life. Let's look at what it says. First word, therefore. Okay, you're together, guys. And here's what I want to lay down. Three things. Number one, it says a man shall leave his father and his mother. First thing that we see is a foundation of married life is that by God's design, marriage involves a leaving. doesn't mean you have to have 50 miles distance between you and mom and dad. doesn't mean that you can't even live in their house. In in ancient times, uh, they had many generations in the house. But what it meant, this leaving, for this reason a man shall leave his mother and father, you started a whole new life where the new priority relationship in your life is your marriage. I am not an expert on marriage, but in 33 years of ministry, guys, I literally have, have counseled over a thousand couples. I'm not saying that to brag anyway. I just, I've been there. I, I've seen their heartbreak. And I can tell you this, and I included my premarital counseling, but I've had to put in, in a lot of post-marriage counseling. What, what he's saying here is marriage isn't really for daddy's girls and mama's boys. It really isn't. 
I mean, you can love your mama. You can love your daddy. I mean, I hope my girls will always have. But I've got to get used. And it's already happened. It's already happened. They used to come to me and ask me. And now they ask. My oldest one, her, she asks her husband. And that's as it should be. Does that kind of tear my heart apart? You better believe it. Especially when he's wrong and I'm right. Man, if you want to go down that wrong path, go ahead. Man, Dad's got the wisdom here. But it is as it should be. Again, this wasn't saying, okay, make sure there's 30 miles distance between mom and dad. Even though sometimes, I mean, Carly and I, right after we got married, we went off to seminary. We were hundreds of miles, I mean, 16 hours from mom and dad. That was back in the days that some of you can remember that it actually cost to pick up the phone and call long distance. And so you called on Saturday and Sunday, and I had the time clock right there. You got one hour. And I made sure, you know, we just had the money to to do that. And so a very long distance. But, you know, we grew together that first year. It was good for us. I'm not saying everybody should move 16 hours away. Because in Middle Eastern families, again, they had multi-generations in one family. But something has to switch in here and here. Saying, okay, this used to be priority. Mom and dad was priority. That was the relationship I grew up with, and this was a priority of the relationship. But now that I am married, this is the priority, the spouse that I have. And it's above all other relationships that I have, including your children. But please avoid the temptation, guys. I say this out of tremendous love. It is so easy to make the children the center of our lives. It's even easier to make children the center of our lives in hurting marriages. Because, you know, again, guys, we need pats on the back. When your kids are happy to see you at the end of the day, that's the pat on the back. Moms, you do a lot with insecurities. And that little child loves you no matter what. You don't have to brush your teeth. You don't have to, to look like the model on TV. You know, they just love you because you're mom. It's so understandable why we're drawn to that. I'm telling you guys, it's just not biblical. I would even go this far. That the greatest gift that you could ever give to your children is to have a healthy marriage, Christ-centered marriage. And make that the priority. You will do more to prepare them for seeking a mate and being successful in a mate when you have demonstrated that that is by God's order, not by your choice, not because it feels right or this feels wrong, but by God's order, that that this is a leaving of the old priority where you were the son or the daughter of mom and dad, and now you are the husband or the wife of the one that you're married to. It is so essential. And yet, you know, I've seen it a thousand times. Dad starts working more hours. Why? Because that's where he gets the attaboys. That's where he gets the pat on the back. You get affirmed there. I mean, guys, we need affirmation. That's like week four of the series of the needs that we have as men and women. And and we need affirmation. You know, God designed, this is not sexist whatsoever. I don't want to get ahead of me. Guys, we need cheerleaders. And you know, by God's design, the number one cheerleader in my life is supposed to be my wife. And I, for her, if she needs security, the number one place that she's supposed to get security, uh, again, in an earthly context, not in the relationship with God. That's a given. 
is from me. We'll see that about week or three or four and get really into the practical part. But God lays it down. Where we derive it from is right here in the Scripture. For this reason, therefore, a man shall leave his mother and father. It doesn't mean you've got to go 100 miles off. It just means you have to leave the priority of that being the most important, the primary relationship in your life. And now the relationship that you have with your spouse is number one, even over your children. Second thing that we see here in the middle of that verse is not only is there a leaving, but according to King James, there's this old word. It's called cleaving, that you shall cleave to your wife. Now, I don't know that many of you use cleaving in, in the context of that last week in a sentence. I, I doubt very few people said, you know, the snow is coming. I'm just going to go home and cleave with my lot, wife, you know. So what does he mean? You know, what did the King James mean? Okay, you leave your mother and father, you cleave to your wife. That word in the Hebrew means, literally means to stick together, to cling together. Most, most literally means holding fast. Now, now, what is this holding fast? What does he say? Okay, you are to, by God's design, you are to cleave together. Cleaving does a couple things. Number one, it brings protection. When you cleave, when you, when you, uh, pr- you know, seal something, you, you protect it. You, you have some food, you have some food left over, so what do you do? You get out the, the, the wrap and you seal it. Why? Because you want that to be protected. And there's a part of this cleaving that God says, okay, husband and wife, you come together and you are to protect this marriage. You are to protect this relationship. The second part of this cleaving is that it's a proclamation to everybody else. No, we are cleaving. We're we're together. I, I cleave to her, she cleaves to me. We are stuck on and holding fast one to the other. That's one of the reasons why traditionally in, in weddings you have witnesses. That's why weddings for the most part were never done in secret. They're always done as a celebration. They're always done with a lot of witnesses. In some states, like in North Carolina, you still have to have, in Georgia you don't, but in North Carolina and other states you still have to have on the marriage license a witness to, to put down there. It's kind of come from this. You're making this proclamation and you're letting it be known to everybody around you. I cleave to this one and she's cleaving to me. There's a form of protection. There's a form of, of, of saying, okay, this is primary in our lives as far as all of our earthly relationships. And then there's a third part there that we see in this cleaving and that it is a binding covenant. We're going to talk a lot more about it next week. That's why we say, till death do us part. And I realize that there are people in here, I, I realize that, you know, anytime we gather together, we're going to have people that are about to get married, people that are married, people that have been married. And, and God's grace is sufficient for us in, in all of those places of life. But, but marriage, as we will see next week, is a covenant relationship. It is not a relationship of convenience. It is not why I'll love you until this happens. And, and God ordained that. And part of this cleaving is that it's, there's a permanence to it. So uh, he says, okay, I want you to, 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 to leave your parents. I want you to, to cleave to one another. And just because it rhymes, you're not going to find this word in there. He says, I want you to weave together. You shall become one flesh. You cleave. I mean, you leave, you cleave, and, and you weave together. What the Bible actually says is that you shall become one flesh. 
You leave the me life behind, and now it's a we life. The minute you get married, every priority in your, your heart and your mind, biblically founded, changes. When this says two shall become one, there, there's so many things there, guys. At the heart of it is this word that is a $64,000 word, if not a $64 million word in, in our society, the word intimacy. And, and, and here's the, the bad thing that our culture has done to us. When we think of intimacy, almost immediately in our culture, we begin to think of sexual intimacy. And it certainly is that. We won't water that down or, or back away from that. God meant for it to be there. But intimacy, by God's design, this two becoming one, is intimacy on every level. It's not just that you have this good sexual life together, but there's an intimacy in mindset. There's intimacy in finances. There's intimacy in, in raising your children. There's intimacy in the things you enjoy in life. There's two are becoming one. And God's whole desire there is, is that there would be an intimacy in your life. Have you ever noticed that people who have been married for a while, they start to look like one another? Now, I've always wondered, do they really start looking like one another? I mean, if that's the case, pray for Carly right now. You know, I mean, <laughs> poor girl. Is it that or just that we get used to seeing these two together for so long, 20, 30, 40 years, that we just can't imagine kind of one without the other? And so, you know, that we begin to, to, to put them together in our minds. I think it may be a little of both. I think most of it has to do with what he says right here, that by God's design, this marriage is going to be a weaving of, of, of lives together. It's going to be intimacy on every level, spiritually and physically and emotionally and mentally. I mean, don't be surprised that, you know, 25, 30, 40 years into marriage that you complete one another, another's sentence. Don't be surprised that sometimes that happens four or five, six years into it. I mean, sometimes, you know, at first it's really cute. Oh, you know what I was thinking. <laughs> Forty years into it, will you let me finish my sentence? You know? <laughs> and yet the reality is the same. <laughs> they really did know what we were about to say. By God's design, guys, do you see the beauty of this? And you also see the tragedy of, of how our world just is, I mean, this is biblical. This is not commentary on marriage. This is God's foundation of marriage. He says, here's what it involves. It involves a leaving. It has to be priority. There will be a thousand things in your life that will start to, to grab to make themselves a priority in your relationships. But marriage, if you're married, is to be number one. Secondly, he says that this is going to be a cleaving together, that you have to protect it. And we're going to talk one whole week about how do you protect your marriage. And there's a protecting there, things that you can do and things that you can just ascribe to in your lives to help protect your marriage. And then there's this weaving together by the grace of God. The two become one. Sexually, sexually uh, physically, mentally, and all those things, that was God's design. Now, why did God do it that way? Well, I'm going to leave you with one last verse. And instead of, you know, this either was going to be a two-hour sermon or you're going to have to come back next week to get the rest of it. And I figured you probably didn't want a two-hour sermon. But look at verse 25. 
It's a verse that, that we probably overlook a lot of times or we take out of context. But a key to understanding the covenant marriage life that God has called us into biblically is found in verse 25. And yet our society has so, uh, you know, we just hear the word naked. I go, naked, naked. <laughs> I mean, we just, you know, there's just a part of us that we hear that and we think of just the sexual, we think of just the physical. But look what it says in verse 25. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. That had a physical part of it. But guys, most of that is a mental, a spiritual, and every other part of our being. This is before sin. This is before the fall. This is before there was deterioration. And what we see here is that they were able, because of this marriage, because they were there, not just that they could not wear clothes and be physically naked and that they could sit there and say, you know, we don't mind this. That's really not the point, I promise you. We read it that way because we're in that kind of a sexually overcharged society. But that's really not what verse 25 means. What it means is that they felt unintimidated in the presence of one another. That was God's design for marriage. That whether that was physically, emotionally, spiritually, all these different things that we would find in this covenant relationship, a place that we could just go, that we're going to see what happens with that because next week we're going to talk about the covenant relationship what that really means, a covenant. How this isn't out of convenience. This isn't a contract. This is a covenant. And we're going to go to Ephesians and see what Paul said about marriage and how Paul says all of marriage, every marriage that has ever existed, has always been for this one purpose, for us to understand the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it's the heart of the covenant that we have with God. So we're going to see something that's really kind of theological in nature next week, but it will make a lot of sense of what does this covenant look like to me and you? Because this is God's heart and desire. Verse 25 is God's heart and desire that we would have that kind of marriage. And yet because of the fall, because of our sin, because of our insecurities, because of all these different things, you know, guys, we really don't stand naked in front of one another. And again, please, don't just have that physical nature of nakedness. But I'm talking about, I mean, do we really come on full display of everything that's in our mind, heart, because that's what marriage was intended to be, that we really would have one person that would walk by our side, be that encouragement, be that corrector, be that one, that we truly could just be ourselves, and they loved us so much that they could say, you know, I accept you, and so let me say this for your well-being, not just because I want to nag you. That's what God wants marriage to be. He wants your marriage to be that way. So, Bobby, this was before the fall. This is before sin and selfishness and all those things. What happens after the fall? Well, we'll see that it's still possible if, if we settle ourselves in Christ Jesus. I pray this morning that, that, you know, that if you're married, that you would see the gift that God has given you. Maybe marriage isn't, your marriage isn't perfect, and somehow you're saying, you know, you know yes, I married Mr. Right, but somehow... There's been a tainting of the rightness over the years. I married Mrs. Wright, and yet this isn't what I thought I was getting into. I mean, there's, guys, we don't have perfection. 
But God's purpose for marriage has not changed. And his intention for you to have a partner by your side, a a person to do life with in this most intimate of ways, to be a spiritual help and encouragement to you, to to be a, a friend, and yes, even a buddy. That's what God always intended the marriage to be. It's beautiful. God, I mean, Adam already had God. There wasn't a spiritual neglect there in his life. He already had fuzzy little animals that he could play with all day long. God said, I want you to have one that's like you that you can spend the rest of your life with. I love marriage. Not just my marriage. I love marriage. Because I really believe it shows us one of the purest parts of the heart of God. And so that's why I really hurt over hurting marriages. I I will counsel 24-7 if somehow something I could say could direct them back to a biblical marriage. I, I hate when there's discord in, in marriage because I, I really believe that, you know, Satan just has his way. I mean, if, if you're Satan and you want to attack this world, where do you attack? The very foundation of what God wanted to establish all of society on. And that wasn't government. It wasn't the church. It was marriage and the family. So why would we be surprised that even good Christian people feel the attack of Satan sometimes in the midst of the marriage? But we have been left a goal. And the man and his wife were both naked and they were not ashamed that there was this vulnerability that they could just sit there and say, thank you, that this one place in the world I can be me is with you and you still love me. That's God's desire. I'm not there yet. I tell you, Carly's not there yet. We're still working on that. That's where we want to be. We see this goal. We see what Christ-centered marriage can be like, and that's our heart's desire. And I pray that this very day that there's an excitement, a, a thirsting for you to have that, just like there was in Adam. He didn't even know what Eve was going to be like, and yet it says you know, that he started developing that so that when God finally gave Eve to him, he says, at last, at least I, at last I have this gift that I've been yearning for. Let's pray together this morning. Father, we love you and we thank you. And Father, it is so easy for us to take on, uh, when we begin to talk about marriage, a desire just to fix the problems and how do we deal with this and how do we... Father, if we don't start back at the foundation of what you have intended marriage to be in the purity of the very first marriage, then Father, we can put as many band-aids on our marriage as we want and we will never see and never get to the beauty of Genesis 2.25. Father, I, I pray in the coming weeks that that would be the desire of our heart, that we would be able to stand in the midst of our marriages, fallen people in a fallen world, and, and yet be able to say, you know, God has blessed me with this one who has made covenant relationship with me through thick and thin, and, and we, will, we will follow hard after God together. Father, will you develop that in us? Father, I I pray for families in here today that are really facing that temptation of making the children the center of the marriage. 
They have cute children, Father. It's so easy when we look down and we both have this endearing love for our children, Father. It's so easy for them to become the focus. Father, will you, will you show them biblically that as much as they are to love their children, it is never, never, never to be the primary relationship. Will you help them to make that marriage the primary relationship, to bless that child and to prepare that child for their own marriage one day. Father, just be with us today, Father. We just need you. We need your wisdom. We need your, your love. We need your grace. We just need you, Father. And we thank you that you have spoken to us so clearly through your word as we pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening today. We hope this message was a blessing to you. To learn more about our church or our media ministry, you can visit us online at www.corner-stone.org or find us on Facebook.